Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nathan Sager. On this episode, John U. Bacon joins us from Ann Arbor, Michigan to discuss the greatest comeback, how Team Canada fought back, took the Summit Series, and reinvented hockey, which was published by HarperCollins Canada on September 27th. Throughout September in Canada, the 50th anniversary of the Summit Series was celebrated. For those that didn't get to take in the hard work of journalists and filmmakers to commemorate what happened in 1972, here's a quick breakdown. The Summit Series was an eight-game friendly that took place in the heart of the Cold War between the Soviet Union and Canada. Obviously, it was a hockey series. <laughs> One of those uh, games ended in a tie, so it effectively became a best-of-seven with all those games ending in regulation time. There was no overtime. Canada, of course, won the series on Paul Henderson's winning goal with 34 seconds left in Game 8. That was the last of four games held in Moscow. The first four were held in Canada. So, Nate, why did the series happen? (laughs) Well, it it is like Lennon said. You look for the ones who will benefit. Uh, Was that off the White Album or Let It Be? I'm talking about V.I. Lenin, Vladimir Ilyich <laughs> Ulyanov. So on our side of it, you've got, you know, the, you know, the part, you know, the dramatis persona. If, if I can. Yeah, Nate, we all went, we all took, you know, English 110. Uh, there was the NHL Players Association, a, still a relatively young union at that time. Super agent Alan Eagleson, you know, here's a chance to, you know, sell off TV rights, start filling the coffers of their pension fund. Hockey Canada has motivation because at this point, Canada has withdrawn from international hockey after being tired of the International Ice Hockey Federation's, you know, back backroom politics. And the Canadian government also sees this as a chance for catalytic. No one, of course, had any idea how catalytic it was going to be. And in 1972, hockey is, I think, you could say hockey is getting pulled into the 20th century. There, you know, there, there's a players union, but there's still players entering the league who were, in the words of you know historian Douglas Hunter, indentured as boys by a document called the C form. And it's say whatever you want now about uh, player drafts being immoral. Okay, Nate. <laughs> yeah, no one's reading that book. I know, sad trombone song. But the C form is even worse than drafts. Believe me. Uh, and, you know, there's so this is a bit of a side hustle for Alan Eagleson. It's attempt to like you know, show, showcase hockey to, to the world throughout Europe. And uh, <laughs> so there's everyone, everyone kind of wants something. And the Soviets also want something too. They're getting a little bit tired of just pounding the pickled herring of a Sweden and Czechoslovakia and, and some American college play, players every year at the world championship. They're and, ready for something else. And so they, and they want to test themselves against the world's best. Um, yeah. Right? Yeah. So they sort of, put out the signal that, you know, that they want to learn from playing an all-star team of Canadian pros, and they do it through the appropriate channels, as they're known to do. 
yes, a, a planted uh, newspaper article in the state media in the Soviet Union. Yeah, hard to believe, eh? Uh, it went from there, and our lads kind of walked right into it. As the late Pat Stapleton, who was, a, I think, was a big motivator for John Boykin to do this book, as Pat Stapleton put it, we got suckered. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the book. Absolutely, this book was uh, basically, you know, in a lot of ways, commissioned by the, uh, the 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 full team participation of that of that seventy two team, and and Stapleton was the point guy, and later it became Park, and certainly uh, they want their story to live on forever. And you can, you know, they picked a, a, a the right guy and John Bacon to kind of put this into a an all world context and kind of go outside the fishbowl of of you know, having this book written by a Canadian in, in a way. So, uh, although John would argue that he, you know, he's, he's pretty much as close to Canadian as you can get. Yeah. His... I, I think that you in the middle initial, that's cause that's the same one we have an hour and labor and honor. <laughs> <laughs> well played. So back to the series, everyone thought the Canadians would run over the Soviets, but it didn't play out that way. Uh, as the pressure increased, remember it was, uh, Canada was one, two and one, uh, only one win after the first four games at home. Um, I, you know, I think about the examples, uh, you know, pe- people that knew about this pressure that were watching this series, not the ones that played in the game, but just fans or future hockey players that 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 kind of got caught up in this. Yeah, this series lives in the perspective of people who are in the moment. And I have to think, too, it was probably the first time a lot of people watched a sports event on color TV. I remember seeing a blog post from Greg Drennan, who's a you know, veteran sports writer in Western Canada saying he, he had to get taken a bank loan to buy his first color TV to watch the 72 series, like, you know, to get the 500, scare up the 500 bucks. Anyway, so yeah, so this yeah. there is, it lives in the perspective of the people who, you know, saw it all and go down in real time. And I'm taking it that you sought that out, Neil. Yeah, and John Bacon did in the form of uh, Mark Messier and Wayne Gretzky, who are in this narrative. Uh, they watched it as 11-year-olds and were enthralled. Um, you know, they were enthralled in the same way me and you, Nate, kind of were in the sense that obviously we never grew up to be professional hockey players or one of the greats. But when you watch the Soviets, you know, we watched them 15 years after 72, probably, um, you know, the 87 Canada Cup type of thing. And, you know, some of those friendly series they had and the rendezvous between the Soviets and NHLers. And just watching them was was a, a kind of a, a thing in itself. They were, they, 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 the way they acted, um, uh, they seemed so uniform, literally like they were emerging from behind an iron curtain to be seen then and only then on the ice. And they disappear. It was truly a unique experience to watch uh, the Soviets come and play. But... Um, you know, like us, Nate Gretz and Mess were watching something new. Uh, Messier ended up saying he, he, to John, he taped his stick like Yakushev. And uh, later on, when they were 19-year-olds with the Oilers, Gretzky and Messier would make a razzle-dazzle play and say that was uh, very, uh, I know I'm going to screw this up, uh, Yakushevian of you uh, when, when they made a nice play. Yeah, so, but... go ahead. <laughs> and yeah. Go on. Yeah, so so um, you know Bacon focuses on on you know Gretzky and Messier's awe of the series. Uh, it doesn't really get into Wayne's uh, Eastern European roots, which uh, could have been thread into this. Um, 
in the way kind of uh, they were when I talked to a, another 11-year-old who uh, watched it at the time, uh, a former teammate of Wayne Gretzky in minor hockey, uh, a guy named Mark Osborne, an NHL veteran who we both know. His parents are Ukrainian. He watched Game 1 in West Toronto uh, with his maternal grandfather. This was a man who escaped conscription from the Soviet Red Army, whose uh, family hid in the woods over a winter to avoid, avoid Soviet advancement following the end of World War II. Um, or thereabouts, um, and and they lived in displacement camps before settling in Toronto. And he remembers his grandfather as a casual hockey fan who wasn't casually watching what was billed as a friendship series. Yeah, no one was watching casually by the end. Uh, one uh, "Where Were You in '72?" story I can't ca- carry comes from the legendary Chris Thomas, who was a newsroom colleague during my days in sports. As a sports and night news editor at a small community daily paper in southwest Ontario, down in Ontario's tobacco-growing region, not far from Gretzky's hometown, Chris worked at, the, at that paper, the Simcoe Reformer, for 35 years. And true at the Delhi News record, as he would always add. So the day of Game 8, September 28, 1972, Chris was a 25-year-old reporter covering Ontario tobacco board meetings in Tilsonburg. Oh, Tilsonburg. Uh, Stompin' Tom's Tilsonburg? Yeah, yeah, my back still aches when I hear that word. Yeah, that one, Todner. So these farmers, many of them Hungarian Canadians, are finding out what prices they're going to get for their crops. Tobacco was always harvested around September. Uh, many of them would have migrated to rural Ontario during the years between the World Wars because the land there, the, you know, the agronomy of it all was uh, very similar to the plain back home. And one could only extrapolate and imagine how they would have felt toward the Soviet Union after it rolled in and repressed the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. So because everyone was caught up in it, obviously the meeting was paused to watch the game. Now, many of these tobacco farmers, you know, they weren't necessarily hockey fans. They were they were busy, you know, busy working a lot. And they might not, as Chris would put it, they might not have known what end of the hockey stick was up before that series started. But when they saw Canada, you know, beat the Soviets, many of them just, you know, at a time when men didn't really cry in public, uh, many of them were moved to tears because, you know, communism, you know, that, pers- you know, that had, had their, you know, its thumb on their on their homeland had been defeated. And Chris always said, you know, there was great irony for him as a young reporter being there that day because months earlier, someone who worked for Molson Brewing had invited him to come to Moscow for the second half of the series, and he turned it down. He didn't think it was going to be a big deal, but as he told me one night when we were, we were doing, like, you know, our usual 12-ounce curls after payday, you know, by staying home, I got to see what it really meant. And, of course, beer factored into that series. As Bacon describes the, you know, there was a, you know, some several pallets of Labatt's beer that came with the Canadian traveling party that just disappeared and our guys and their wives and the coaching staff and everyone just went full shoresy this team will never lose again yeah first it was the labats uh and then the stakes probably in concert and then they that pissed off uh the wives and then yeah they weren't losing after that uh as it's said in the book um yeah nate when the magnitude is this large and the ripples reach so far out 
that story's worth retelling. You'd mentioned Chris's story when we talked to Scott Morrison in May, and it, 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 it does, it's useful to reiterate it at this time. You know, in, in the narrative, John Bacon points out that in 72, there was, a, you know, in quick succession, there was the Munich Olympics. Um, the, the basketball final at those Olympics uh, was controversial, where the Soviets uh, beat the U.S. after three restarts. Um, there was a chess match between uh, Spassky and Fisher. Uh, a chess match, which took on the weight of Cold War supremacy. So, you know, this one, this this series probably, you know, didn't start out. Uh, it didn't involve the U.S., so it didn't start out perhaps like that. But like everything at that time, it didn't matter what it is. It didn't matter when it happened, but it was it was going to take on something larger. And, and this series did that very quickly. Yes, and I mean, Canada pulled it out. I, I think Phil Esposito talked about how Air Canada sent a jumbo jet to bring them home. And he said, if we had lost, they wouldn't have sent a Piper Cub to pick us up. <laughs> uh, the end result was, you know, the, this OG Team Canada, they overcame culture shock, the ice shenanigans, uh, you know, incompetent, you know, on-ice officiating, and a well-drilled and highly skilled USR it's our team to win. And still, because it have way it all went down that it almost came with this like twinge of almost a moral defeat as uh you know the great novelist mordecai rickler wrote about a decade later quote nothing was ever the same again in canada beer didn't taste as good again with the beer uh the rockies seemed smaller the northern lights dimmer our last minute win came in more in the nature of a relief than a triumph now maybe that's a little bit of hyperbole there because i mean it's certainly taken on a diff different meaning over time you know uh, there's another recollect recollection nate we want to share with people um and uh for this one i called your mom and she wants to know why you're not calling home uh so much anymore hi i'm kathy sager and for game eight of the summit series i just started my second year at carleton university in a journalism class and for our first writing workshop, our professor, Carmen Cumming, wheeled a TV into the room and instructed us to watch the game live, take notes, and write our first news report. This was pretty exciting for me because I was a big hockey fan and I was going to get to see the game live that afternoon. So um, we proceeded to watch the game and it was it was kind of fun being in the class with everyone, but at the same time, it was a little distracting trying to keep track of things as the drama unfolded. And there were people that weren't hockey fans, so they kept asking questions, you know, about the calls and trying to figure out what they needed to make note of to, you know, to get what they needed to write the story. So after the game was over, we left and went back to our, our places and... Uh, I started trying to work on the story. I was lucky enough that my neighbors downstairs, who were an Italian immigrant family, invited me down to uh, watch the game. So it was being rebroadcast that night. Mr. DiMario was like to watch hockey, and he, he would often invite me to come and watch with them. So I sat down with them, and I was able to uh, check all my stats, who scored the goals, what the penalties were, all the time, pertinent times and, and uh, key plays of the game. So I, I had everything pretty solid. And from there, the, re the writing of the story came pretty easily to me. So I dutifully handed it in the next morning, and then 
a few days later, I walked into the faculty office and our graded stories were in our mailboxes, which were open boxes. And there were people standing around and people were snooping. And I see these guys, they're standing in front, of my, um, in front of my mailbox, and they had my story, and they were looking at it and kind of grumbling. And I was like, hey, give me that. So when I looked at it, there it was. I got an A on the very first uh, news story I had written for the class. And <laughs> for me, this was pretty sweet. And in a way, it was just special because I created my own memory uh, of the of the exciting end of the series, and it stayed with me for all these years. Okay, so back to bacon. Uh, by the way, thanks for that, uh, Miss Sager. Um, so back to bacon. He provides insight and context, lots of it from the ground up. Uh, Anatoly, Anatoly Tarasov creating the Soviet program, um, and before that, the creation of you know sports on the weekend. Uh, you know, following the industrial revolution. You know, but back to Tarasov. You know, he creates this this program, the um, Soviet ice hockey program, uh, not as a copy of the dominant Canadians, but something entirely new. So, in the vein of, have you heard of total football uh, with the great Dutch teams of the seventies? Well, this was kind of like total hockey. Um, Bacon uses advanced analytics to break down the decisions made on the Canadian side during the series uh, in a very digestible and moving way. Uh, Bacon explains tactically what Canada did to come back to win the series under the leadership of Coach Harry Sinden. Um, and he also makes some really stark uh, forthright comparisons between East and West. And um, then his final take uh, is, is, is unwavering. And, and I'll just read that to you. Um, if Canada lost its status as the sport's only superpower in 1972, the 50 years since have reestablished Canada as the best among equals. Winners of three of the last four Olympics featuring the top professionals, plus six titles in the best-on-best best competitions mentioned earlier, and he'd mentioned earlier like Canada Cup and so on. Um, Canada has had to share the stage, but not the crown. It is still the world's greatest superpower in hockey. Somehow that strikes me as something very American to say. Yes, and for us uh, here, you know, up here in Ontario, always a thrill to just find out a big shoots American book writer such as John U. Bacon has a hockey background. Uh, you know, think of our you know Rich Cohen episode last year when he came on to talk about Pee Wee's Confession of a Hockey Parent. We're just like, yes, because you mean. You know, hockey, there are pockets of the United States where hockey's super popular and it's, you know, something that, you know, the writer grew up with and maybe, you know, and just as likely that someone maybe who could have grown up like in one neighborhood over might might never have seen a game. So, yeah, to just uh, emphasize, you know, the stature of, of John Bacon, he's written a dozen books, including uh, he's a full-time book writer, four New York Times bestsellers on college football. I've been blessed to to you know since we're up in canada I, that means you know you know four downs we have three downs so i've read three of them uh three and out fourth and long and end zone uh his he's got that mastery of just you know putting you right there with the athletes and you know the decisions they face and the choices they have to make the sacrifice you know body and mind to compete and then you know can seamlessly switch like over to a boardroom where maybe you know the outcomes and goal goals are pursued just intensely but maybe sometimes aren't you know registered on a scoreboard so yeah canada russia 72 is a timeless tale 
duh. And it's one of several techs on, on the Summit series that are going to be at booksellers as this holiday shopping season approaches, Neil. Yes, thank you, Nate. When we come back after the break, John U. Bacon discussing the greatest comeback. And we're back, and it's a pleasure, Nate, today to be joined by John U. Bacon. As we've, we've teed it up uh, pretty extensively already, uh, we're going to talk about the Summit Series 72 and his book, The Greatest Comeback. So uh, welcome to the, to the program, Mr. Bacon. Thank you, sir. Thank you, uh, Neil and uh, Nathan. Um, so I, I'm going to get right into it. Uh, and, you know, we... I, I've gone back a little bit on some previous episodes and realized, you know what? Sometimes I'm not asking the simplest question. It's getting overlooked. So I'm going to just ask you the most basic question right off the bat. And this would probably appeal to anyone who, you know, doesn't really know about this series. But, you know, what lasting effect did the Summit Series of 72 have on hockey across the board uh, from the pros down onto minor hockey? I'm going to make the crazy argument, Neil, that those 30 days changed hockey more than the previous 30 years, and possibly the 30 years afterwards, although it's changed a lot more since, of course. But this was a crazy cataclysmic meteor meets planet moment, where these two hockey worlds that knew almost nothing about each other, at least the Canadians knew so little about the Soviets anyway, um, changed the whole thing, the conditioning, how the game is played. And when I interviewed Wayne Gretzky about this, he said, look, the Edmonton Oilers in the 1980s that are flying up and down the ice, but also hitting um, quite well, of course, and big slap shots and so on, said, we don't exist without this without this tournament. And, of course, he and Mark Messier, who wrote the forward, God bless him, um, <laughs> those two guys were both 11 years old when the tournament was going on, when the series was, and uh, they watched every single game, and they said it changed their view of hockey, even as 11-year-olds. So there you go. And... and- you know, it's, since we're we're talking about it, you know, one of the things I talked to another 11 year old uh, who watched it at the time. Well, he's 11 at the time. He ended up becoming an NHL, or he actually played a junior with Wayne Gretzky, a guy named Mark Osborne who played for the Wings and for the Maple Leafs, a couple other sure. teams. And you know, he was uh, you know son of um, Ukrainian immigrants. His grandparents were mm-hmm. Ukrainian, and I was wondering, you know, he he spoke to me a little bit about the political element and what his grandparents were looking for, how they were casual fans but dialed into this series with Wayne. Did you, I know in the book, the narrative doesn't really cover any of the politics, but he does have Eastern European roots. Was there any of that covered or, you know, left out, I guess, uh, uh, in the interviews? Or did you just leave that alone and focus strictly on the impact of the play? Well, no, we talked about the politics, too, to some degree. You're right, not as in-depth as the play itself. Uh, but I think, and I make this also, this case near the end as well. Look, I'm, uh, I'm, here's the joke. I'm half Canadian bacon, so there you go. <laughs> uh, my mom is from New Brunswick. That side of the family has been there for 240 years. There's a town called Underhill, New Brunswick. Those are my people. Um, but uh, but I grew, was born and raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is 45 minutes from Windsor. So as a kid, I am running home from third grade. I'd just become a squirt, which back then was the smallest uh, unit you could have compared to no mites back then. Right. Um, we'd run home and see Channel 9 out of uh, Windsor, CKLW. Uh, the only, I think, CBC station that carried the series. Everything else was CTV. Um, but anyway, so so I'm certainly aware of it enough to care about it. But as an American, you can kind of see it more a bit from the outside in some ways. And my joke about that, guys, is that Canadians are so doggone humble. I think you need an American to brag about this. <laughs> 
guess you guys aren't very good at that, which is why you're charming, of course. But uh, <laughs> um, but the, this really was the, one of the most incredible dramas, as George Will said about Jackie Robinson. This is not a great baseball story. It's not a great sports story. It's one of the great dramas of the human condition. And if Jackie Robinson was the most important athlete, I would argue, the previous century, this, I think, was the most important team. Because if you look at the most important moments in Canadian history, forget sports history, history. Yeah, you have, you, have you have Confederation, you have Vimy Ridge, World War One, obviously World War Two. Uh, but Confederation was a very slow process. The word got out slowly. It took a 115 years to gain full independence. Um, that's a very slow process. World War One and World War Two are shared sacrifice, shared credit. This is Canada's alone. Everyone knows what's going on. It's eight nights in one month, and everyone's watching the doggone thing. And it's your sport. It's it's hockey, and other nations play hockey, and Canada plays other sports. But Canada is the only nation on earth where they would rank their favorite sports, hockey one, two, and three. So this is the whole national identity, is my argument. And that, that being the case, this, I think, was the most unifying moment in Canadian history. And you mentioned earlier Eastern Europeans, including the Gretzky family and others. I have heard countless accounts firsthand of people who had just gotten off the boat, if you will, mm -hmm. in the uh, late 60s and so on, this made them Canadians. The Canadian flag is only six years old when this takes place. We take it for granted, of course, and certainly the current generation does. And it was very few people had the Canadian flag. They hadn't made that many. And now you see it waving on TV every night in Moscow. This thing, I think, turned Canadians into Canadians. That's how big it was. And not to mention, you know, the flag is new, and then the jerseys kind of got this. Uh, I mean, I heard it was designed in a day. I think I might have actually read that uh, uh, in some of the press that you had done previously. I'm not sure about that, but yeah, and the, the jersey reflects the flag in its own kind of '70s way too. Exactly, man. '70s to the '70s. I I was around for those kids, so um, a lot of crazy <laughs> things happened, including the the lamb chops, the sideburns, <laughs> all that awesome stuff, the Phil Esposito look, which most of them had. But yeah, the, the flag was new, and yes, it's in my book that that jersey was designed in one day. The guy took a red jersey and a white jersey and took a pair of scissors and just cut out the other one and laid it on the other jersey, basically. So he <laughs> two jerseys to make one jersey. That has to be the coolest, I think, uh, Canadian national jersey ever put together. And it's amazing how fast that thing got rocketed around. Um, but how, and also, by the way, people forget. I mean, of course, the French-English issue has always been a big one in Canada, is still to this day, although it's certainly quieted down. Uh, but it's raging at this point. In 72, this is a big deal. There are, I mean, there have been murders in the provinces mm -hmm. yep. over this. Um, it is yep. hot as can be. And, and this team, man, French-Canadian, English-Canadian, they didn't care. Uh, they were as unified as could be by the end. And I think right. the whole country picked up on that. The celebrations in Montreal and in Toronto afterwards reflect that, that they were equally gigantic. S certainly you do a good job and i and i thought yeah i mean uh, we talked about you know you, you mentioned the the you know bringing the american perspective certainly you know i don't know how many uh books i've read that really mention the other things that are going on at the time uh like obviously you got spasky fisher <laughs> happening as a chess match there's a there's munich uh there's the soviet uh usa uh gold medal basketball final in the men's uh in the men's gold medal final so uh, everything at that time seems to be taking on, um, you know, an East versus West uh, Cold War, no matter what it is. And, and, and in this case, 
uh, Canada. I mean, was the was the was the world watching this? Uh, I know you were in a border city, but like, I mean, were by and large was this just for Canadians and Soviets to watch, or or how did this reflect to the rest of the world? Uh, mixed bag, but this month, and Mark Mulvoy, who covered the series for Sports Illustrated and wrote a book with Ken Dryden on at the time, Face Up at the Summit, Dryden's first book, um, he ended up being the longtime editor-in-chief of Sports Illustrated, which was, of course, the flagship of all sports writing for the United States, certainly for many years. He said this was the most important month in sports in East-West history. He said it's all going on. The Spassky-Fisher chess match is the first time anybody in the United States cared about chess. <laughs> <laughs> I recall as a kid, I mean, that was in the cover of Time Magazine, a chess match. And all the wives, by the way, the Canadian wives in mm-hmm. Moscow, when they went to the gum store, what did they buy? Chess sets mm. uh, for that reason. And then you got the U.S.-Soviet uh, basketball final, which had three finishes to it. And the third one, the Soviets won very controversially. And to this day, the American basketball players, including Doug Collins, who's a big name, mm-hmm have yep. never taken their uh, silver medals out of protest. So that's how ticked off they were. And during this time, Ted Turner, who starts CNN, he had the great quote. He said, man, I can show kayaking. If it's North America versus versus uh, <laughs> East Europe, I will, I will sell it out. It will be fantastic ratings because that's how much we care about anything that is East versus West. And then this is the third thing that happens that month. This is the pinnacle of the whole thing. Who was watching? All of Canada, obviously. We'll talk about that in a second. But Detroit was watching. Uh, Boston is the only American city whose TV stations got their own feed. We could watch out of Windsor. Mm. Uh, And of course, Buffalo watches and towns like that. Um, But Boston got it live because Harry Sinden, the coach, of course, Boston Bruins, Phil Esposito, list goes on there. So there, the mayor of Boston traveled to Moscow. They had about 100, 200 tourists that went along with the Canadians. Uh, so that town got it a lot. But people forget, too, that all of Europe was watching this contest. So it wasn't just Canada and the Soviet Union. They're all watching it, too. But all of Europe, East and West Europe, were watching this contest. And that's another reason why it changed hockey forever. So it did not have great penetration in the U.S. the way it should have. And I am working to change that, gentlemen, <laughs> right now. Uh, I've got things set up in Philadelphia, New York, Boston, all the the towns that were the big players played. Um, so I'm hoping to have some uh, penetration there. Uh, but it was across the hockey world, everybody was watching this. It's it's interesting, and I'm going to let Nate jump in too because I've kind of been jumping all over the place uh, on the board here. But because you brought up a couple things I was going to ask you about later, uh, this is all news to me. Uh, first of all, about what happened, you know, in the states, because like I said, we're you're outside of the fishbowl, so you get to to, to tell us about that. Um, those narratives aren't necessarily in the books that come out of Canada. Um, but Bobby Orr, which you know, Scott Morrison, Hall of Fame uh, um, honored journalist, uh, we interviewed him in May about his book uh, about the same subject, and I, you know, I had I didn't know Bobby Orr was was you know part of this team in any way and it's mentioned in his book it's mentioned in your book so i'm sure the boston fans uh maybe were hoping he would play right because that was a possibility that he would play oh it was it was down honestly the game until sweden and of course people forgot about that and first of all hats off to scott morrison i've never met the man to my knowledge i know he's a hall of fame writer i know why he is (laughs) Mm. uh he's got very good stuff uh and i hope he takes this as a compliment I made it a point not to read his book because it came out in the spring. (laughs) 
Uh, and I figured his would be the closest to what I'm trying to accomplish. And I didn't want his phrases in my head in, whereby right. I might inadvertently uh, yes. plagiarize them. I wanted to have an original book that was not uh, patterned on all the others. Um, so I hope it takes that as a compliment that I saw his as the main competition. Um, and I, by all accounts, he did a great job, of course, and is a good guy. I hear that from other sources. <laughs> um, but, uh, but back to your question about um, Bobby Orr. Bobby Orr, um, is that, uh, yeah, in Sweden, until then, I mean, he's still with the team, and he's in the stands, and he's practicing with the team, but in Sweden, he stumbles twice and almost wipes out uh, because his knee locks up. He he just can't do it. So finally, after game five, the doctor said, you're out. You're out for good. And until that point, they still kind of thought he's going to be back for all these games at some point. And you have to give the Soviets this much credit. They played a lot of games behind the scenes, a lot of skullduggery that Canadians would never have done, referees included. Uh, but they did always hold an extra spot on the roster in the hopes that Bobby Orr would play. They wanted him to play. Right. And and did you ever find out where he was? I, we know you, you got into Dale Talon hanging out in Bobby Clark's uh, dressing room <laughs> stall. Did anyone ever find out what Bobby was doing when, when all this was going on, where he was hanging out? Uh, he was in the stands, and there are photos of him in the stands with a row of players along with Red Barons and some others. Right. Uh, the, the healthy scratches usually. Um, so, but, well, uh, but also we also know why too that I didn't realize that you know I didn't realize at the time as an eight year old naturally. But uh, Bobby Orr had a lot of skin in the game in terms of a lot of money yes. along with Alan Eagleson. So he was uh, interested for a lot of reasons to make sure the Canadians uh, performed well. But the players give him a lot of credit though for giving them great advice between periods and before and after games that he was definitely engaged. And we're, we're and we're going to talk about money in a second. And Nate, thank you so much for waiting along. I know I've been hogging uh, the questions here. Last one before I let you jump in, uh, and then feel free to just just go, Nate. Um, but uh, back to the lessons off the top. The first question um, I, I was asking you about. Uh, there's 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 a chapter essentially about this at the end, and there's a Pat Stapleton quote. He says, you know, coming back to the NHL after playing the Russians, it felt like snow, slow motion. And Dennis Hall says he was in the best shape of his life. So were the lessons, you know, these lessons we talk about now, the game opening up, you bring up uh, the Oilers uh, and, and, and so on, and the game we see now. Um, but those lessons were learned pretty soon after. I mean, I mean, that first season, even probably those first games after, right? Exactly. And that's, by the way, I hope your listeners appreciate how well you guys do your homework. You know, I read the book, you pulled out a lot of great stuff. And keep in mind, I finished it six months ago. I forgot <laughs> some of this stuff. <laughs> you read it more recently than I have. <laughs> True. But, uh, but that's exactly right. Um, the irony that I wanted to hammer home in this book, one of them, many ironies in this book, I guess. Um, but one is that, okay, the Canadians didn't even know they had a style. They didn't know there's another way to play hockey until the Soviets come along. And they realized, wow, there are, there's more than one way to skin this cat. This is creative stuff. Uh, they admired the Soviets for what they could do. Uh, they liked the players very much. They didn't like the, the officials very much, of course, the uh, Soviet officials. Um, and yet the funny thing is, it's the Canadians who learned the lessons fastest. They're the ones who adjusted during the Summit Series, not the Soviets. The Soviets never changed at all. They had one game, and they're going to play it. And once they, Raj Gilbert told me, once we realized they didn't have a plan B, we're on them. Because we could have a plan B. The Canadians mm-hmm. were crafty enough to change their style mid-tournament, which is asking a whole lot. And then right. afterwards, they're the ones who figured out the conditioning. They're the ones who figured out how the game was going to change. And it was Herb Brooks, the American coach, who was watching all this in 72, who helped create the hybrid style along with the flying freshman, 
flying Frenchmen, sorry, the Edmonton Oilers. Um, the Soviets didn't change for many years afterwards. So give the Canadians credit that they're the ones who adapted, not the Soviets. Indeed, John. And the title is the greatest comeback, but how how fair is it to say that maybe that's the, the real narrative? You know that you know Canada finding out well life begins the second you get out of your comfort zone. Uh, exactly right. And why did they get out of it? As you know, the the shock factor in four or five straight waves in the first five games uh, cannot be underestimated. The headlines of hockey myth ends. Uh, if an atomic bomb drops, you can't have bigger headlines than that. So that's how cataclysmic it was, of course, at the time. Uh, but yeah, give them credit. They're the ones who adjusted. Uh, they had to adjust, no doubt about that. They, the pressure was immense, I think. Um, but they did it. And they also became a team, too, as we know. But uh, both those factors, I admire these guys immensely. And not because they're rich and famous, but because I've never seen any team be challenged like this to be so heavily favored in the one hand and they'd be such complete underdogs with three games left and that title comes from brad park who told me in my interview my first of god 10 interviews with that guy poor guy um <laughs> that uh that this was the greatest comeback of all time i would challenge you and i and i've tried i've challenged you to find anywhere in sports annals a greater comeback on so many levels of any team sport and this for me takes the cake yeah, I, I don't have a counter other than ones I've watched on YouTube, and I was like, eh, eh, no, no, they weren't, they weren't this, weren't of the same magnitude. Uh, exactly. I, I sometimes look at sports in literary terms. Like, how much when you think of where they, this team was with three games to go, and I mean, everyone's seen a team in a hockey series be like, well, you know, there's the famous Daniel Alfredson quote. I think the Ottawa Senators were down three one, and he gets asked, "Can you come back?" And he goes, "Probably not." which is like the most honest answer in the history of uh, post-game interviews. And that's for that, I think you should get some extra points on his Hall of Fame resume. But in literary terms, how much is would could this just be boiled down to a story about where just, you know, optimism becomes the act of resistance? You know what? Uh, if I'm talking to Neil now, I believe. Or, no, Nate. Well, I'm Nate. I'm Nate. Oh, Nathan, sorry. <laughs> Nathan, if you gave me that damn quote six months ago, it's in the book, okay? <laughs> um, optimism... Say that again. That was so good. Uh, uh, where optimism becomes the act of resistance. That's it. That's exactly it. Um, the beautiful part with the last three games to go. Um, I've interviewed, by the way, the 1980 Olympic guys. Herb Brooks and I were doing a book together when he died in a car accident in 03. Um, so I got to know a lot of those guys pretty well. Um, and they said, you know, it's a myth that we thought we were going to beat the Soviets that night. So we weren't stupid. They kicked our butts 10 to 3 with the JV team earlier um but we but Herb believed we we're going to beat them and by then we believed in Herb. and going to the third period they finally believed but this team i did not find one player who thought at any point that they were out they were done they knew it was bad and getting worse throughout canada as the losses stacked up and of course game five you're now down one three one with three games left but none of them ever thought they were finished they never thought they were done now people outside that locker room Almost all of them thought that. The, the media certainly did, including the Canadian media, who, by the way, was brutal on these guys, as you read in the book. <laughs> um, the fans, however, came around after Phil Esposito's speech, as you know. These guys are kind of on their own. And it's one of the great collective, as you say, the resistance, the collective determination to come back. I've never seen any team draw on each other that deeply, and especially guys that, whom you hated six weeks ago. 
Um, just to, like I said, if Jackie Robinson's the best individual story, this is not just a great story of hockey or sports, but of the human drama. To see a team come together like this against all odds, it really is, I think, the greatest comeback. Indeed, and it's something I wanted to ask before I, you know, come, we come back to Neil. Uh, you touched on, you know, the fact that Canada at that point still a relatively young nation, a relatively new flag. There's the French English tension. But I always remember a quote from uh, Dave Bedini, who's a, magi- a magician and writer up here, talking about telling a bunch of young Italian hockey players when he was in Italy about how much pride he felt as an Italian Canadian when Phil Esposito <laughs> told off the entire nation because he's like it was Espo <laughs> doing it, you know, his you know his paison, not not some uh, I think as Bedini put it, some cake loyalist. As a cake loyalist myself, you know, got to own it. Um, I just wondered, like, you know, you, at this point, Canada's got, you know, lots of communities like pe- people would come, you know, from post Second World War diasporas. And this is a year after Canada adopted multiculturalism. How much did this that do for a lot of people, you know, opting into this, you know, this country they'd come to? And, and just in your view, from looking at it from the other side of the border and as a historian. Well, one of my previous, by the way, I don't get termed diaspora in sports interviews ever. <laughs> so well done. Nate, you passed one. the course. You passed Nate, John's you passed course. The course. There you go. Um, but uh, my one of my previous books is on the Great Halifax Explosion, when I learned a lot about uh, immigration, how your Ellis Island, of course, comes through Nova Scotia, comes through Halifax. Um, you had many, you know, obviously so many parallels with the United States. But again, you're... The United States was the rebellious teenager who tells his parents off and runs away. Well, that's a pretty dramatic moment. That's 1776. Canada was the good kid, of course, that hangs out for a long time and eventually moves out and goes to college and does everything right. So there's not that defining moment in the same way. And, you know, American patriotism certainly borders on obnoxiousness plenty of times, but it's always there. And I think for the Canadians, and almost all the players mention this, because most of them have either played for U.S. franchises or certainly toured the U.S. many times in their careers. July 4th, you're going to see a lot of American flags. You see very few Canadian flags in the same way. But that month, you saw a ton of them, and they kind of needed that crystallizing us versus the world moment where they all came together. And again, I've read Dave's book too, by the way. Dave's books, uh, The Tropic of Hockey, is uh, lovely. I love that one. Um, So he knows what he speaks. But it's the same stuff. You have Asian Canadians, you've got Italian Canadians. It's all across the board, naturally. Um, and this is the one thing that everybody could feel. And find me another moment. I mean, the moments that everybody knows where they were tend to be disasters, whether it's 9-11 or JFK assassination, these things. Um, September 28th, uh, 1972, every Canadian alive I've met can tell you where they are. My uncle who lives in Montreal um, he, uh, you know, is a computer geek. He's done very well in computers. Uh, he's in his eighties now. Uh, I, I said, uncle Bill, even you had to watch this thing. He said, a matter of fact, I did. And he remembered the pub where he watched it. Even he had to walk in in the mid afternoon to watch this thing as a graduate student. Um, it got everybody. And one great line from Alan Eagleson is they say 85% of Canadians were watching this game. What the hell were the other 15% doing? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something Alan Eagle was able to say. Well, you know, we're going to ask you about him in a second. Um, um, but did I did I cut you off there? Or are you? No, we're good. Okay, okay. So, so I, what I'm I want long answers. Sorry. No, this is good. This is good. This is it's sports lit. We talk about sports literature, so this is there perfect. Um, 
Uh, then Nate's going to ask you about the point spreads in college football a little later <laughs> for our sponsored segment. Um, yeah, I'm 64 grand in the hole. They're going to take my thumbs. <laughs> uh, this book is billed as the first uh, written with the complete cooperation of the whole 72 team. Um, that, that was interesting to me. It, it, you know, it, it, that, you know, the explanation says it all. But like at, a, at, a, at this point, we're 50 years after the fact. And there's countless uh, publications and films. Like, how did this become the book that had the whole cooperation of the team? Well, it was their idea. That's why uh, mm -hmm. they knew they wanted to do this. They wanted everybody on board, and they uh, and why they picked me. You'd have to ask them. Pat Stapleton, of course, rest in peace, uh, passed away a couple of years ago. Um, I was on a book tour in Toronto, and I know how to say that. By the way, it's not Toronto. No, you American. It's Toronto. <laughs> Only one T in Toronto. Right. Uh, back in 2017, uh, about that great Halifax explosion, which was the anniversary of it. And while I'm there, a friend uh, asked me to get there earlier to uh, have a discussion. And he said, what would you think about writing a book about the Summit Series? Because he was uh, close with Pat Stapleton, and Pat sent him out to ask me. Hmm. And I thought, I said, I can't imagine. I, I would kill for that opportunity. What does it look like? And they laid it out for me. And how it breaks down is it's HarperCollins Canada. Uh, so it's only published in Canada. You can buy it in the U.S. in various places, uh, but it's not published in the United States. So it's about a third as much money as I'd normally make in, a, in an advance. That sounds um, a very Canadian versus or America versus Canadian situation. <laughs> uh, hey, either your heart's into it or it's not. But he assured me that all the players would cooperate. And boy, did they. Um, I got four hours with Phil Esposito in Tampa when I was down there. I went to Boston for Jean Martel and Harry Sinden gave me three or four hours each. Um, it goes on and on like this. And all the guys gave me at least an hour. They all gave me repeated interviews and they held nothing back. And a few reasons for that. Um, they're Canadian. They're hockey players, always a humbler breed than other sports, I think. And being older, they know what they think and they're not that self-conscious. They're willing to let it rip. And they certainly did in this book. So for, for an American kid, admittedly, again, half Canadian, I do have a Canadian passport, I'm pleased to say. Um, but I, I can't fool anybody. I was born and raised 45 minutes uh, west of the border. Um, but what a treat. And they always say, by the way, you should never meet your heroes in sports writing because they're bound to disappoint you. Not these guys. These guys were great, uh, charming, funny, direct. I, I consider many of them friends now. I don't know if they consider me a friend. I wouldn't want to presume that, but uh, Brad Park, Pete Mahovlich, uh, Bob Clark, Yvonne Cornway, my favorite player growing up, they've all just been wonderful. And if this book has lasting value, and I certainly hope that it does, it will be probably in many cases the last time some of them sat down and talked about this at great length. And we've got it all captured between two slabs of cardboard. I find that really interesting in a, on a number of levels in the sense that, you know, they wanted it done and they, they chose an author, you know, out, so you must think there's so many beat writers, so many people have written books and they went outside of that, uh, in a sense, um, which is great. And I, I think Nate would agree, you know, we, one of the things was, Hey, listen, someone else is writing about this. That's not from here. And, you know, I find that, I find that really intriguing. I would love to know more about their motivations on that. Did they ever tell you, uh, did they ever address that? Hey, listen, we want an American to write about this. You know, we spent a lot of time in America or anything like that. You know, they played most of their, you know, most hockey players play their career in America. Uh, true, of course. Mm. And you, I mean, there should be more Canadian teams. We both know that. Um, Quebec <laughs> should have a team, obviously, Quebec City. Right. 
Uh, and uh, of course, Winnipeg finally has got their city, their town, their team back of course. <laughs> Uh, right. that took a little while um but anyway um i don't know if they set out to find an american right um they had read the halifax explosion and the mm. fact that an american was telling that story yes. i think appealed to them yeah um so i think again the tendency is to think that this is a canadian only story right i don't care who you are this is an amazing story period mm-hmm. and my american friends who've read it are eating it up and likewise, when they read the Halifax explosion, they say, they say, wow, I can't believe I never knew about this. And when they read the Summit book, The Greatest yeah. Comeback, they say the same thing. How did we not know about this? And the answer is ABC didn't cover it. <laughs> That's what right. the answer is. Uh, sad to say. And by the way, what the hell were, I guess, the Munich <sighs> Olympics. But that was over by the time this finishes. They should have shown these games. We would have gotten a great, a great following in the U.S., I think. Well, it's interesting the the regional coverage you do point out. Um, there there's a political threat, obviously, uh, in, you know, in this book. Um, but there's an economic thread too, uh, as to why this series happened and how it played out. As you point out, the TV rights deal in Europe was two hundred thousand dollars a game. So sometimes Canada could say, "Hey, listen, we're not going to play into your uh, mind games. We're not going to play because there's money at stake for." both sides so could you explain the economic thread from how the series started to kind of you know what transpired and how money was used uh, to dictate uh, what would happen on the ice that's a great insight right there before i even jump into that one you mentioned earlier the political angle yeah i do get into that some but not a lot Mm. and my thinking about that is so many of the books focus on the political side that's been done i felt and done well um, Cold War, of course, Gary Smith, others. Uh, by the way, McSkimming's book I did read very carefully, and it's fantastic. Um, there are a lot of, as you said, there are a lot of great books about this. So right. if mine survives with them, I'll be very happy. Um, but the what I found more compelling was the internal uh, story, the how the, the silos of the NHL, how these guys who were raised to hate each other, that was part of the NHL system, designed to create that hatred, how they overcame, overcame that themselves despite the NHL's wishes and, and became a real team and incredibly close friends to this day. And Ivan Conway said, when I see Phyllis Posito, I did not see a Bruin, I see a teammate. Right. And they were enemies for you know 15 years and teammates for a month. So that says a lot. Um, but back to the economics of it, that was a driving force and kind of a an invisible hand, if you will. It's not obvious the way it often is with these things. But one thing that drove it, for example, when Alan Eagleson uh, with Bobby Orr um, sells the rights for more than they had sold them already, and I think got a million or seven fifties like that, but a lot more than they had previously gotten. So right there, you know, it's a big deal. Three thousand some Canadians uh, take the travel agent's invitation and get their flights on Aeroflot and Air Canada and so on, and get over to Moscow uh, for an experience there, which proved to be a vital component. I don't know if Team Canada pulls this thing out without 3,000 crazy Canadians going nuts <laughs> in Luzhniki, uh Stadium at that those three games. Um, so they're a factor there. Um, you ever got Bobby Orr and Eagleson uh, with the TV rights, and again all across Europe. But that finally is the leverage. Uh, Moscow's getting making money from this thing they never thought they'd ever make. They're the ones who put the ads on the boards, not the Canadians. It should be noted. Um, <laughs> But when you get over there, of course, when you're finally screwing around with the referees, and that drama to me was fantastic. And no one tells that story better than Alan Eagleson. I know he's controversial. I know why he is. But nobody knows this series better than he does. And Harry Sinden backed up all the stuff he was saying, and the players did as well. 
Um, but with all this monkeying back and forth with the referees and the Soviet officials, um, their word was not good at all. They lied constantly. They're always playing games. And finally, the leverage the Canadians had, they're going to bow out of game eight, and they almost did. They came a lot closer, I think, than people realize, to saying, nope, we're gone, we're out of here, is that Moscow needed the money. And they already had the money, $200,000 a game, uh, which is a lot of money for them, especially a lot better than rubles. Um, and they, they would have to give that money back, which is even less appealing than turning it down. So the leverage they had finally with the referees was based on the TV contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and incredible. Now, yeah, I do want. I did want to ask about Alan Eagleson. Like, how how do you explain Alan Eagleson to people in 2022 who may not have heard of him? Because at one point he's the most powerful man in hockey, more powerful than the league president, and then he's, you know, he's a ghost basically after everything goes down with the fraud charges and whatnot. Yeah, uh, he is without question the most controversial and complicated figure in this story, the story I've told at least. Um, a few things. One, look, I mean, I, I grew up watching Hockey Night in Canada every Saturday night. I played high school hockey. I coached high school hockey. My previous book is about coaching. It's called Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And that's a true story, by the way. So uh, we took over the worst team in, in America and did okay. But um, So I care about the game. I still play on Tuesday nights with the Michigan hockey players. So I, I certainly knew who Alan Eagleson was. I've got friends of mine who played in the NHL who lost money because of him. So and I know he spent some time in jail and whatnot. Um, and yet, uh, when I'm talking to Bob Clark in Philadelphia, I was going to talk to Eagleson anyway, almost certainly, but I, it probably would have been a relatively short interview, and I'm not sure what I would have gotten. But Clark insisted. We had a great interview in Philadelphia, two hours. Um, direct, funny, noble. He's got some of the best quotes, I think, in the book. Yes. Um, and he says to me, you have to talk to Eagle. Uh, not you need to, you should, you have to. And before I leave that day, he calls Eagleson in my presence and says, you got you to gotta talk to this guy, yours truly. So I'm sure, and Eagleson has told me since, given the stamp of approval from Clark, excuse me, given the stamp of approval from Clark, he was going to give me a lot more than he would have otherwise. And we had, I don't know, five, six, seven conversations, plus some fact checking and whatnot. I know he's controversial. I know why he's controversial. I know that Brad Park and Phyllis Pizzito and John Martell want nothing to do with him. Uh, others are very close to him, the Mahaliches, um, and people like that, and of course Bob Clark and Serge Savard. So people I respect also. So, uh, but I will have to tell you flat out, nobody living, and probably no one gone, knows more about this series than Alan Eagleson. The man didn't sleep for six months, basically, and Sinden said he never saw anybody work harder. Sinden or uh, Eagleson's phone number, his email address, and his car license plate all end in 1972. That can't be an accident. So (laughs) this man has got binders in this stuff. He knows it better than anybody. And his facts uh, continually checked out every time he told me a story. I double check it somewhere. I checked out every time. So from my point of view, I get the controversy. But this book would not have been nearly as good without Alan Eagleson. Mm -hmm. And in tying 72 to 2022, I wondered what was what sort of prompted you to sort of engage Evan Hall from the U of Michigan hockey team. Obviously, there's a connection there, but what what thought? Well, let's get Evan to put the game footage, you know, through the I guess the analytics ringer. As it were. That's about right. Uh, well, Alan, uh, Evan Hall is not a name that anybody there is going to know. Of course, um, he does analytics, you know, film study and so on for the 
for the University of Michigan hockey team, which Red Berenson, one of the players on the Team Canada team, coached for 33 years. Uh, Red's the first guy to go straight from college hockey to the NHL back in 62. Um, so I said to Evan, I said, look, I've got you know, here are the eight games. Uh, can you put this through your filter? Will it work? Because the old cameras and so on, they didn't have as many cameras as these guys do now. Can't play it back and forth quite as easily. So he tried the first game and gave me his results. I said, man, this is great. And one of the biggest differences is this, is that back then all they kept track of was shots and goal. Now, if you know the sport of hockey, of course, a shot and goal can be a you know, flick of the wrist from center ice that's on net and anybody can stop it. Uh, but if you're on a two-on-one and we shoot wide, uh, that does not count, even though it's a much better chance. So, of course, modern hockey and NHL Network and so on and CBC and CTV, uh, they talk about chances. So even though we're on a 2 on 0 and I shoot wide, that's still a hell of a good chance. So kept pick up chances, not just um, shots and goal. And within chances, you got plus and minus when the other team got good chances when you're on the ice, plus and minus good chances when you're uh, for your team when you're on the ice. And that's where you and that takes a lot of breaking down. It's a slow, tedious process. And Evan Hall is very good at it. Um, but you got these great pictures, these great statistical pictures of what was actually happening in these games. And you can see that he was right to, to bench Vic Hadfield, for example. Vic Hadfield was playing worse than we had imagined when you, when you break down the analytics. And he's also right to play Bob Clark because his numbers were great. And Henderson's numbers were great. And so were Phil Esposito's. And it wasn't just goals and assists. It's the way they're playing. Ronnie Ellis, for example, has got great stats, even though he only had a few assists and I think one goal. Um, but he played a great series. And what's amazing to me, when we look back on this 50 years later, Harry Sinden, with the benefit of none of this, <laughs> surmised with his eyes and his brain who was playing well and who wasn't. And 50 years later, modern analytics vindicate him in spades. And that's just fun to see. So after each game, I got at least a paragraph breaking down who played well, who played poorly. And then sure enough, Eagleson or Eagleson, Sinden almost always benched the guy that we think is playing poorly today yeah. and played the guys who were playing well. Otherwise, you never get, you never get Henderson, Ellis, and Clark were the last players picked out of 35. Eagleson told me that. Yeah. And Sinden trusted his guts and how they were playing, not big names at the time. And, uh, and he was right. It's actually probably the most, one of the most incredible parts of the book in a lot of ways because it, the the eye test is validated, you know, uh, many years later by analytics because there's always a war between the two, right? Oh, it's oh, yeah. the eye test. now, And it comes together to, they both prove each other uh, to be right in some way, which I thought was really interesting. So um, I was going to ask you about uh, that vindication or that, you know, the fact that he was proven right. But since you answered it, it actually works out really well because let's tell the, let's let the listeners know what, Harry was and Team Canada were up against. Uh, uh, you write you write about this, and we'd ask you to read kind of this 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 new Martian team comes out of nowhere, and they are doing all these things that you know you have to contend with on the fly as a Canadian uh, hockey player or coach. So could you uh, could you read for us from the book um, what they saw that first game? Sure, I'd be happy to. And I got to tell you too, has any team ever assembled ever been so gobsmacked at what they're facing and the the closest i can come to in the old days in baseball the american league never played the national league until the world series so you really don't know what you have other than the all-star game well this is that times a million and they had no idea what they're facing and and the pressure not only from 
Canada as a nation, that their, their entire national identity was pretty much on the line, and Canada felt this. But also these guys individually, if you're that good a hockey player and you grew up in Canada in the 50s and 60s, your self-identity is mainly probably as a hockey player, and that's being torn apart also. So individually and collectively and nationally, the whole thing, all the chips were on the table. So here we are on page 121. After confronting the stunning gap in conditioning and the mind-blowing fact that the Soviet players were every bit as good as they were, two thoughts hard to swallow in themselves, the Canadians slowly started recognizing through the fog that the Soviets were playing a game that they had never seen before. How they played was something else too, Red Berenson says. The skill level was terrific. They used their feet so well and were so good with the puck. They'd make five or six passes before they got their shot off and wow, where did that guy come from? They were making backdoor passes on their off wings, something we didn't do. And the D would join the rush like the forwards. We were not just physically whipped, but mentally whipped too. All of this was new to us. And as I said to you before, that Team Canada didn't know they had a style until they saw another style. So, and then Phil Esposito takes it from there. He says, the cycling in our zone, Esposito recalls, shaking his head. Everybody does that now, but we'd never seen it. We didn't know what the hell they were doing. We wouldn't know what to call it if we did, <laughs> which I love. Yeah. Uh, Pat Stapleton, who sat in the stands that first night, said, I admired their lateral movement. That's just something we didn't do, teach or do. Maybe because we didn't even think it was a good idea. The Soviets' endless movement, fueled by unmatched passing and stick handling, and usually culminating in a wrist or snapshot, was supported by their unusual sticks, the same ones the Canadians were giggling about the day before when they watched the Soviets practice. Uh, Stapleton later learned, in Moscow, good sticks are hard to find, so they didn't want to break them with slap shots. They cut them much shorter than we did, too, better for puck handling. For them, passing and wrist shots trumped the slap shot, and we saw a lot of that. The Canadians were also surprised by the Soviets' truly foreign habit of regrouping in the neutral zone, a definite no-no in the NHL. <laughs> Paul Henderson says, I played for Punch Imlac in Toronto. Man, if you ever went back with a puck, he'd kill you. And what were the Soviets doing? Going back and regrouping if they didn't like what they saw. Again and again and again, until they were ready to go in. I'd never seen anything like it. They were such a well-oiled machine. You could barely tell the difference between their first and fourth lines. They all did the same things and could change all five guys without losing the puck. Nobody in the NHL did that. We didn't know that was something you could do. Every time we thought they were going to shoot, they passed. And every time we thought they were going to pass, they'd shoot. Never felt so bad for a goalie as I did for Kenny Dryden that night. I felt sorry for him. Honest to God, I did. Yeah. Bill Cito adds, Kenny couldn't go side to side. But in the NHL, he didn't have to. We didn't play that style, and he had D in Montreal to clear the rebounds. And Park adds, Kenny's a big guy, which is normally an advantage. But the Russians didn't go north and south and shoot when they crossed the blue line like we did. They'd go east and west and east again and just kept passing and passing until somebody was open and then shoot a one-timer off the pass. We never did any of that. Kenny had to make some changes. But then they all did. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's insane. They basically... 
were at a you know they were dealing with something they'd never seen before, and you illustrate it really well in the book there. Uh, and then you also explain that Harry Sinden, you know, basically in that flight over the Atlantic or whichever way they went, they might have flown the other way over the Pacific. I'm assuming uh, out of Vancouver to go to play in Europe, he had to you know, he, he tactically changed the game plan, right? In terms of, obviously, we, we talk about the heart of the Canadians, but he actually, you know, like we're looking at analytics, whatever. He he changed where the forwards were positioned versus the center and that type of thing to 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 kind of, uh, I guess, mitigate the Soviet attack, right? Exactly. Now, NHL style, and the style I coached when I was coaching high school hockey, you put the in the defensive zone, you put your wings on their defenseman. It all matches up. Your center's got their center, the D got the two wingers, etc. But Sinden realized pretty quickly that the defensemen, their defensemen on the blue line, shooting slap shots are no threat whatsoever. That's not the problem. The problem is they're going tic-tac-toe down low, you know, two and three passes until finally somebody has got an open net on poor Ken Dryden. That's what's killing them. So he put the center up top and the two wings down low, which is a pretty gutsy move, to try to mitigate, as you say, the, the lower passing right around the, the crease. And then when they're in Sweden, he invented a new practice, basically, uh, a new way of playing hockey. He's the one in a weekend, basically, who <laughs> invents the hybrid of style of hockey that now everybody pretty much plays by forcing them with a whistle of they could not go across the blue line with the puck until he blew the whistle. So they're learning how to cycle back in the neutral zone, circle around and regroup, regroup, regroup. They're learning a new game. And that's all because Harry Sinden saw it and found ways to teach it and Never underestimate just how smart the hockey IQs, how high the hockey IQs were of these guys. These guys figured out very quickly, there's not one dumb guy in this lineup. There's not you know, just, a, just a fighter or a thug. Those guys weren't on this, on this team. These guys were incredibly smart hockey minds who figured all this out and quickly and took Harry Sinden's coaching. When I once interviewed Chuck Daly, the basketball coach, right. about the United States Dream Team basketball team in 1992, they said uh, Larry Bird and Magic, Magic Johnson, for the same reason Canada had their dream team in 72. They're tired of the college kids losing, basically. Uh, and I said, how the heck did this work with all these Hall of Famers? And he said, hey, great players let you coach them. And these were all great players, and they let Harrison and coach them. Ah. Uh. Um, you know, it would be wrong if we, we didn't mention the Soviets and uh, Anatoly Tarasov. And that the you have the chapter with the the heading to copy is to be second best. Why did he Why did he think he he needed to to change? Why, why, I, I, it's a self explanatory, but you know what was the impetus? I know he Lloyd Percival and so on, but what was that in him that knew that he had to be one step ahead? Well, give the Canadians credit. He knew that they were. I mean, look, they're sending the you know the the flying dutchman they're sending the trail smoke eaters right. over to the international stages with bad referees uh, bad rules um with the international rinks and crushing teams you know eight nothing so tarasov wasn't stupid he saw all this and he said there's no way we're catching those guys because canada didn't lose anything at those you know the first three or four decades of international play we got a 60-year head start and what tarasov's trying to do when he starts at an outdoor rink in a children's park in Moscow, 20 by 30 feet, um, in 1946. And his line is to copy is to always be second best. If they try to do what the Canadians are doing, there's no way you're catching them. So in many ways, he did the exact opposite. They dump it in, we're going to carry it in. They have big shots, we're going to have little passes. And they're going to have big guys knocking each other around. We're going to have little guys who can skate forever. And that's what he did. And very quickly, 
Uh, they started winning international competitions. Eight years later, they're beating Team Canada um, in the World Cup, which that gets your attention. But mm. no one took it that seriously because who are they sending? And one fundamental mistake the Canadians made is underestimating how good the teams were that they had been sending over there. Now, these are, again, you know, Allen Cup winning teams uh, from Winnipeg and Kingston and so on. Um, <laughs> but what do you have back then? You only have six NHL teams. They only have to carry 15 players per team. That's 90 jobs. There are a lot of great players who aren't in the top 90, and now they're called millionaires, by the way. <laughs> right. You got about 700 players, um, and they're all millionaires. Right. Uh, so you had a lot of great players who could not earn an NHL paycheck. Those are good teams that the Soviets were beating. Just exactly. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable what they did. And you point out that, you know, when Canada went to Sweden, they were celebrating the 50th anniversary of their entry into hockey in Sweden because they had that break and they played exhibitions against Sweden between those four games in Canada and four games in the Soviet Union. And at that same time, the Soviet Union's only been playing hockey for like 25 years. So pretty remarkable. I don't um, think about that. I mean, Sweden was playing their own style, more or less like the Canadian style. When the Soviets started playing their style, Sweden, Finland, the Czechs all adopted the Soviet style. So mm. uh, what, what Tarasov did, I don't know if there's any single person more important to the growth of hockey than Tarasov, and certainly no more brilliant. Um, his ideas worked for a long time. I want to go back to, um, and I know you've given us a lot of time, so we'll, we'll try and... Uh, uh, all you want. Hey, uh, I got to tell you guys, this is too much damn fun. You guys are smart. <laughs> We've done the reading, and I've only done a few of these so far, but i got a lot coming up. Um, well, I've not talked about the book in any great length for a while, so this is fun. Well, we thank you. Thank you again. Um, uh, I wanted to to go back to the series for a second and if we, you know obviously we could there's a lot of you know flashpoints we could talk about Espo's speech which we have a little bit of Henderson's winning goal which has been covered uh as, you know the three in a row <laughs> but the big right. one at the end in game eight um but one kind of play that stands out to a lot of people controversial is when Bobby Clark slashed Valerie Harlamov and it was even controversial amongst the team with Paul Henderson making a comment that maybe got taken out of context and Bobby Clark giving him crap in the press as well Uh, what's interesting about this the way it's illustrated in in your book is how it really seemed to be a non-factor at the time now I mean, when you describe it, they slash happens and then there's some kind of, you know, fracas happening after. And it's not the slash isn't even the focus of that, that uh, whatever skirmish at the whistle. Right. So can you know, when did it become a big deal? It became a big deal when a reporter was talking to Paul Henderson a few years ago, about 20 years ago, I guess, in 2002, almost exactly 20 years ago. Uh, Henderson was attending a hockey game, and a reporter asked him what he thought of Clark's slash in hindsight. And Henderson was speaking off the cuff, which is always a little scary when you talk to reporters. Um, He also says it was taken out of context that uh, mitigating parts of the quote were dropped. Um, So it came across, I think, more more harshly than he had anticipated. But, you know, that's 30 years after the series, and these guys are great teammates, and they both played some of the best hockey of their career, certainly Henderson did. Um, so I came across as a shock to see these guys kind of uh, disagree at that high level. And that's, that's when it became a big deal. But in diving into this, and I'd, I'd seen those quotes before, and I've seen the slash many times, and so on, I knew what the deal was. I was, frankly, pleasantly surprised. We need to dive back into it. Uh, just how small it was at the time. Three people were keeping journals 
you know, every night during this series, Rad Park, Ken Dryden, and Harry Sinden. And of course, um, Ken Dryden is the goalie in net that night, about 40, 50 feet away from where this took place. Uh, Park is the defenseman 10 feet away that this guy is trying to beat. Um, Sinden, of course, is the coach watching the whole thing. None of the three journals that night mentioned anything about this. And Foster Hewitt, broadcasting live, said nothing about it. The next day, the Soviets had three main complaints written down, ready to complain to Eagleson and Sinden and John Ferguson. And it was about Gary Bergman shooting his mouth off. It's about this, that, the other thing. Bobby Clark slash was nowhere on it. I'm not saying it's a, a Winnie the, the the Lady Bing. It's a it's a two-handed whack. There's no you know, spinning any of that. And Clark, to his credit, does not try to spin that when I interviewed him. He said, you know, there are a lot of things I regret when I played, and, you know, there you go. But as Frederick Douglass, the old abolitionist, uh, said about the Civil War, you can't have the rain without the thunder and lightning. That's Bob Clark. And <laughs> the way he opened up ice for Henderson in that series to allow Henderson to play the best hockey of his life, that's it's all part of the package. And it's also in fairness to Clark, uh, it, was, it was not the only thing that happened that night that was crazy. Uh, Bergman's getting kicked, of course, by the Soviets, bleeding because of it. Uh, all kinds of dirty play was going on throughout the series with the Swedes and the Soviets, things that Canadian hockey players just don't do. And they get the reputation for being the, the dirty ones, but they weren't the dirty ones. The Soviets, and by our standards, the Soviets and the Swedes were. Um, it's always behind your, your legs and stuff, not to your face. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway... It's been taken out of context. It's been blown way out of proportion. And also, by the way, after the first game, Karlamov only scored one goal the rest of the series. He was not the best player they had. Right. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's he was damn name. good. He was yeah. damn good, to be clear. Oh, for sure. Um, it, it, it's interesting too about that line you talked about. That line, how you know Harrison had put that that line together. However, that line came together, and how crucial they were of Clark, Ellis, and Henderson. Um, did the Russians have an equivalent of a defensive scoring line that you were aware of? Not like that. Um, the Karlamov line was the scoring line. They had the the kid line, of course. The three guys about age twenty one and twenty two. Um, all of them played pretty responsible team defense. They didn't have just a gunner line. Mm. Um, and what's striking about the line that Harry put together, um, Harry Sinden, that is, right. is that it's the only line that stayed intact the entire series. Um, I mean, you've got all these wonderful players. I mean, the world's, I mean, what, 10 of these guys, are the 50th best, 50th best players of all time. And line after line just didn't click. And I've coached and you guys have played the game mm. and yep. watched the game. Man, there's just no explaining why one line works and one line doesn't. It just, I mean, it, it defies chemistry or science. Um, it's just crazy. I mean, uh, Frank Mahovlich and and Phil Esposito were worked horribly together, and Cornway, a little guy, of course, works great. I don't know how that works, but it does. But these guys clicked from the start, and Ronnie Ellis and uh, Paul Henderson said that uh, the key was that all Clark was was basically Norm Allman, their usual center in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but younger and faster and probably more aggressive. Mm-hmm. And they had a beer. I love this story. You know this one. They had a beer after the first practice in Toronto saying, look, we're, we're, we're the lowest guys in the totem pole here. Let's just work our tails off. They used another word. And, and so we can play in Toronto the second game so Paul Henderson's mom can see her boy play. Let's, let's grind. Let's get back on defense. Let's outwork everybody. And they did, and Sinden, to his credit, recognized that and started them or played them every game. 
I just wonder why. What what is it in about human nature that makes people latch on to a a, a thing like the you know the Clark and Karlamov play and make it out to be more than it was? Um, I think it's partly the Canadian humility. Um, I think it's my joke about University of Michigan football fans is some of them aren't are not happy unless they're not happy. I think it's very hard for Canadians to accept this gleaming victory where the whole nation, the whole team came together without finding fault with what they do. I swear to God. Uh, and look, I mean, I coached very clean hockey. I'm a clean player myself. Uh, I'm not defending what Clark did. Um, I don't think anybody is you know, saying it's a great example of Canadian hockey. Um, but you have to take it in context. And I think partly is just the Canadian humility of, of self-flagellation, frankly, that uh, the Canadians, they know what a great thing it was. But I'm telling you, I'm, I'm here to tell Canada, if I have to be so presumptuous, it's greater than you think. It's awesome. It's, it's the greatest team story I've ever encountered. Uh, it's amazing. Um, but, uh, but I think part of that is, you know, pointing out Canada's flaws and they bring up some other things as well throughout the series naturally. Um, but I mean, again, like, like Frederick Douglass said, you can't have the rain without the thunder and the lightning. There were no angels anywhere in this series. There just weren't. Um, and you know, at one point, John Martell, the, the two-time Lady Bing award winner yeah. just runs at guys. Right. Uh, I mean, it was that level of, of a pitch and Esposito is right, Phil. And he says, man, this wasn't a hockey game. This was war. And that's what it felt like to everybody. Everyone lost their head to some degree. It's actually, uh, yeah, you, you point that out in a, in a good way of like guys like JP Parise and Rattel, guys that don't, you know, don't get in any trouble usually at all, just going wild. Um, and yeah, I've heard Esposito in the past say he would have killed somebody uh, to win. And, and I've also heard Bobby Clark say that if he didn't, you know, if he didn't uh, use that two-hander, he would have never left Flynn Flon, right? So, um, so, so <laughs> we would not be discussing Bob Clark right now. Exactly right. So the the last two questions here again. We thank you for your time. Um, my question to you is, you know, we now know your interest. You know, you have a you have roots in Canada. You've written about Canada. You live in a border state. Um, how do you uh, how do you sell this? How do you continue to sell this in the states? I mean, I imagine that's probably a big reason why you had to get Mark Messier and and Wayne Gretzky because the narrative is there. I mean, it's 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 very academic. It's compelling. It's 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 you know it's got a lot of weight. But to the average sports fan in the states, are they going to have to see hey Mark Messier and Wayne Gretzky are in this to to kind of want to buy it? Like, how do you get you know how do you get the publisher in on it and how do you how do you sell it down there? Well, that's one reason. Even Americans know who Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messier were, so <laughs> or are, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and both those guys were incredibly generous with me um, through mutual friends and some other folks. So, uh, in fact, Pat Hughes, a teammate uh, who's got three Stanley Cup rings, uh, retired as a detective in the Ann Arbor Police Department. Mm. Um, and it's through Pat that I got to those guys. So, God bless you, Pat. <laughs> um, but, uh, but anyway, so that's one way to do it, of course. The other way is excerpts in Philadelphia, Boston, New York papers, Chicago papers of all their heroes. Mm. Uh, Philadelphia is going to eat up a, an excerpt of Bob Clark. He's still very well known, of course, in Philadelphia, probably still the most famous flyer to this day. Uh, Boston needs no introduction to Phil Esposito, mm. I don't think. Um, and wh- likewise, New York, of course, Rod Gilbert, John Rattel, their jerseys are hanging. I don't know why Brad Parks is not hanging from Madison Square Garden, but it certainly should be. Right. Um, so those guys are still revered in these very serious hockey towns. And as you know, even in the United States, hockey fans tend to be, I guess, the most cultish, the most intense. They're not, there are no casual hockey fans. 
you might be a casual football fan or a baseball <laughs> fan, but hockey is hardcore, man. Either you get it or you don't. Um, and the ones who get it love it, and they certainly know all those names. So that's another way to get it done. The third way I hope works, and let's see if this theory is right, just the story of what they did. Forget how I told it, you know, and again, Scott Morris, I'm sure, did a great job by all accounts. Mm -hmm. um, the story in the raw, the story itself is so amazing that if you just care about, you know, people up against the odds having to come together and figure something out mid, you know, midstream, it's an amazing story. Um, just what the story they lived. And the more I dug into it, the better it got. And I'm a kid who grew up with this and I've read all the stories along the way and so on. I didn't realize just how good it was. So these guys started telling me stories I had never heard or read or seen anywhere before. And that's what, that's what to me ultimately should sell it. Nate, mm -hmm. uh, Nate, take it home. Yeah, for sure. Uh, John, uh, we'd be remiss if we did not ask about a college football question. Uh, <laughs> there's a sport that's always, you know, seems to be offering plenty of book fodder, but I mean, I can't, you know, re I'm not a mind reader, but between th you know, recent things, you know, Michigan's 2021 turnaround season, the, USC and UCLA trying to come into the Big Ten, the playoff expanding. And, you know, how tempted are you to maybe, re, maybe revisit that in the future? Not that tempted yet. Um, my last book on college football was Overtime. And I thought I've said everything I need to say about college football, my thoughts about it. I had four straight bestsellers on that in the U.S. Um, but uh, I'm not that tempted yet. There's certainly plenty of fodder for TV and radio commentary, which I still provide. But I got to tell you, you mentioned the 98 Nagano Olympics. I covered those for the Detroit News. And it's when I was covering those and Michigan football had just won its uh, first national title in 50 years, uh, about six weeks earlier. So most, uh, your, most international sports writers know a fair amount about U.S. sports, you know, the NBA, the NFL, and so on. Um, so we had, you know, European, Asian, you name it, of course, Canadian uh, sports writers over there. And they'd say, oh, you know, I from Ann Arbor, University of Michigan, they just won the national title in football and say, oh, so you beat the Packers. It's like, <laughs> no, that's, that's not how this thing works. And only then did this Ann Arbor kid realize that we are the only nation in the world that cares about college athletics. If you grew up here, you don't think about it. And that's why I'm in a bubble here. And some of the best writing I've seen on college football comes from my friend at the Chicago Sun, I'm sorry, the Toronto Sun, a guy named John Crick, K-R-Y-K, from mm -hmm. Windsor who's writing about college football. I'm the Ann Arbor kid writing about Team Canada hockey. Go figure. But sometimes it takes an outsider uh, to let them know just how amazing this whole thing is. And when you talk to Scott Morrison next time, tell him I want to meet the guy. I've heard so many great things about him personally and professionally, and I'm too scared of his book to read it. Tell him that also. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you what. Um, we're, I'll, I'll send you an email with this contact when we're done. And you know what? I want to thank you. Gave us an hour of your time. Uh, the book, uh, I got to thank Nate too, because Nate really suggested that, you know, we'd done one book on this for this season of our, our podcast. And Nate said, no, we should really do this again, uh, revisit it. And I'm glad we did because it's always good to look at your own stories from, I sort of an outside perspective. You're basically Canadian, but yes, um, uh, it's, it's, it, it was really interesting and it was really well written. So thank you for your time tonight and um, good luck with this the rest of the way and whatever you're doing in the future as well. Uh, thank you so much for all that, by the way. Thanks for reading it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for your smart questions. I'll close with my bit of Canadian I got from the Guelph, Ontario hockey camp I used to attend, the Ron Mason Huron Hockey School. Uh, we're doing videotape that morning. Um, I'm on the videotape. The guy from Western Canada says, okay, Johnny's got the puck here in front of the slot. Nobody on him at all. 
because upper shelf on the 20 there bagged himself a goal right past that trapper there, eh? Any questions? And I raised my hand. I'm Johnny. What the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's an education. I love it. Oh, that's great. Okay. Well, uh, thanks again, John. Uh, and we'll be in touch. Sounds good. And you can find me more on uh, Let Them Lead by Bacon.com.